You know, I don't know why we think of God as sedentary, as immobile or stationary. I mean, I speculate perhaps it's because we have various images from Scripture. I think of the writings of the book of Revelations, where it talks about God being seated on his throne, and we consider a throne to be something that's pretty well set, and sitting down is not an active thing to do. Also, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he, they talk about wanting to sit at his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom of God, if you remember, the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. And he has to tell them that it's not his to grant. He says something like, are you able to drink the cup from which I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, we are. And he says, okay, that's good. But I have to say, it's not mine to grant. So maybe this is one of the reasons that we think of God as stationary, sitting on a throne, sitting there. Or maybe it's because we know that God is never changing, and the things that we know that never change are actually inanimate. They're objects. They um, only do something if we make them do something, but they don't do something on their own. So maybe that's why we think of God as always being in one place. Or maybe it's because of the established church. We have a church. People think of God being here. I think God is here. I don't think God is only here, though. But when people come into this space, they become very conscious of the presence of God. And so they don't even do things that they'll do out there in the world, right? They use different language. They may even relate to each other a little differently. Why? Because in this space, God is present. And so maybe the established church is another reason that we talk about God being stationary. You know, we'll say, I'm going to the church, and we think of this building, something that hasn't been moved. In fact, we've been on this spot for our whole lives as St. Stephen's Church, almost 300 years. For whatever reason, we consider God more often than not as in a one place, and we've always got to go to God. But our scriptures show God very differently. God is always on the move. And by always, I mean always. From the very beginning, when he calls Abraham and gives him a new name, gives Abram a new name, Abraham, and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and this is the land I'm going to give to you. Here it is over here. And Abraham and Sarah go there. And over the years, they continue, the generations continue to move as God is raising up a people for himself. And there's a hard time of trouble and turmoil where the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt and they are called forth from their slavery by the prophet Moses and brought through the, um, the waters to a new land, the promised land, which actually looks a lot like a desert initially. And they are on the move. It's with Moses that the Hebrew people received the Ark of the Covenant. And as they are developing more and more into a people, they claim this Ark of the Covenant as their defining thing. It's the one object they always carry with them. It's, it's suspended on two poles and in the middle, and they carry it with them wherever they go. In fact, in some of the scriptures, they carry it to the battlefield so that God's presence is there. And if you know the stories of scripture, you'll know that the Hebrew people wanted a king so they could be like other nations, and they begged God for a king. And God said, you really don't want a king. Let me tell you what kings do. But they do. They do want a king. Please, we want a king like everybody else has. And so God says, okay, you can have a king. And the king was Saul. And God said to Saul, don't you dare build me a temple, because I am on the move. 
It's only with King David, the successor to Saul, that God acquiesces, if you will, and allows a temple to be built. But that's because David is such a faithful person and understands that God cannot be controlled and God cannot be directed, that God is God. And we hear from the Psalms that we recite every Sunday, most of which are written by David, and throughout his own personal narrative, that he realizes the power of God in his life and professes that and proclaims that to his people. And as the kingdom falls in ruin because of Solomon, David's son, who succeeded him, the prophets rise up and they too are sent and they go. And we see that in our reading this morning as we um, build upon last week's lesson in Kings. And we see and hear it in Isaiah when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. How can I be sent forward? And God says, I will send you. God is on the move, always on the move. And we see this also in Jesus. Jesus, who comes into the scene being born in a place that's not his home. They flee to Egypt to to safety and then return finally again to um, Nazareth where he is raised. But throughout his ministry, he does not stay put. If you remember, when he calls his first disciples, he says, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men, he says to the first of them. And as he finds them out under a tree, or they tell other people about him, or they go to the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist, anyone who wants to follow actually has to be ready to go on the move. They'll say to him, as we see it in several places in Scripture, where are you staying? And he says, come and see where I am. He gets in the boat and goes to the other side, and then he gets in the boat and goes to the other side, and then he gets in the boat and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. God is on the move. And as he walks along throughout scripture and people encounter him, you'll notice he is in motion. Finally, at the Last Supper, as we hear it in John's Gospel, he says to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I go, you can come too. He's on the move. And it's Thomas who says, how can we follow you? We don't even know where you're going. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The early disciples, the early followers of Jesus as they banded together post-resurrection were known as people of the way. They didn't have the name Christian for many decades. And we see this also in the movement of this Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes back to his disciples locked in that upper room at post-resurrection, he says to them, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And throughout the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again the travels of Paul, the work of the other disciples and apostles as the kingdom spreads. God is on the move. God has always been on the move. God does not stay put. I have a couple of friends who preface things with the phrase, I'll be honest with you, or to tell you the truth. My first friend who did this with some regularity, I had a couple comebacks, you know, um, when I first heard him say it. You know, he'll say, I'll be honest with you. And I said, you haven't been honest with me all the other times? Or he'd say, to tell you the truth, and I'd say, well, what were you telling me before? But I came to recognize, especially as I came to know my second friend who does the same thing, that they would use this phrase right before they were about to say something that either was hard for them to say or they anticipated would be hard to hear. I'll be honest with you, that didn't go so well. 
To tell you the truth, I don't think anybody was interested in hearing that. I called my brother-in-law out on this very thing yesterday. I was in Pennsylvania at the Kutztown Festival, and it's an annual fair that happens in their whole town. And the, um, the Bloomin' Onion stand, where you have fried Bloomin' Onions, you know, is the fundraiser for the music program of the school. And so, um, and you earn points by the number of hours you volunteer there for your children who are in the music program. And so my sister and brother-in-law have been volunteering many hours in the hot July week um, in the onion stand for the benefit of their children for literally like the last five years, always this week. And so yesterday they were volunteering there. And their daughters have grown up participating also in the volunteering. And, you know, they're good and hard workers, but they're also happy to have a seat and take a little rest. And I hear my brother-in-law say to his daughter, he says, to be honest, I need some more onions. And I said, you know what? That's in my sermon tomorrow. I said, people always say it right before they're going to say something they think either doesn't want to be heard or is hard to say. And he was poo-pooing that whole idea. And so he wanted to prove that he didn't do it like that. You know, so he said, to be honest, you look nice. I'm like, see, you had to force that in. You would not have said to be honest first. So I think in today's gospel lesson, if Jesus were here now, he would be using those phrases. When someone says, I will follow you wherever you go, he'd say, to tell you the truth, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or when someone says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father, he would say, I'll be honest with you. The dead have to bury their own dead. But for you, you need to go and proclaim the kingdom. Or I'll be honest with you. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It can be hard to hear these words, difficult because they call something out in us and Jesus is not ours to control or to create in our own image. My friend and mentor Carol Anderson wrote this little book, Knowing Jesus in Your Life, some 15, 20 years ago maybe. And she talks about who is Jesus in her book. And to the conclusion of the chapter, she says, we cannot make Jesus in our own image. We have to let him speak for himself and then accept or reject him on the basis of who he says he is and who other people close to him say he is. Keep asking questions of him. Once you have made up your mind that he is who he claims to be, he will make a claim on your life and your life will not be the same. It will change your life. To be a follower of Jesus is a radical step. It is not to be religious. It is to have a relationship with a person who, in fact, calls into question everything about our lives and who turns us around and moves us in directions that go against all that the world thinks is important. Did you hear the word she puts in there? Who in fact calls into question everything about our lives and who turns us around and moves us in directions that go against all that the world thinks is important. Even she puts in the world in words in fact i got to tell it to you. Jesus, in calling us to follow him, will challenge us. Perhaps it's your self-righteousness that he'll challenge. Perhaps it's your certainty of your um, justice and what justice looks like. Perhaps it's this sense of what God is doing in the world and how it's to be done 
vengeance or a plan that's manipulative or destructive. Jesus will say, I got to be honest with you. Jesus will say, to tell you the truth. And so why is it that we respond or anyone has responded to the call to follow Jesus? It's because the way of Jesus is a life-giving way. And as so many things promise fruitfulness, we only find out as we go forward, halfway down the road, that it gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and our options become less and less. But Jesus at the outset says, who wants to follow me? I'll tell you the truth. I'll be honest with you. And it might be hard initially to hear. You might think it's a little bit of work to squeeze through what feels like a narrow gate. But it will expand and expand and expand for you. And your life will be fruitful. You will be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And it is with that that you will join God. We will join God on the move. Amen.